get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. Right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. F- that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson here, joined by Cole C. making his RCST debut today. We're going to be joined by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star in about 35 minutes from right now. We talked about Jesse's piece on Monday, so we'll go a little more in depth with Jesse coming up here in a little bit. But starting off the show, I mean, this is the dark day in sports. There is none of the major four sports typically with a game. Now, today's a little bit different than most other years because the NBA Finals has been pushed off, and so there will be game four tonight. But Outside of that, again, this is kind of the dead week in sports. There is a huge sports debate coming on right now. And we don't have LeBron in the finals. So the typical sports debate going on during the NBA finals would be LeBron or MJ. You know, the GOAT discussion. The debate coming on today. How do you pronounce Travis Kelsey's last name? And you may be wondering, what, what are you talking about? Everybody says Travis Kelsey. It's been known that way for years. Well, Travis Kelsey appeared on... I believe it's called Bussin' with the Boys. I don't know if it's a podcast or a show or in what regard. Um, And this is what Travis Kelsey, or again, Kelsey, I don't don't even know how to pronounce it anymore. This is what he said. I got Kelsey and then Kels. My real name is Kels, so, I mean, I just kind of roll with the punches. Again, he said, my real name is Kels, but I just kind of roll with the punches. Now, there's other video evidence of Travis Kelsey even saying his own name, and he says Kelsey. I'm Travis Kelsey, the Kansas City Chiefs. So I don't know what to believe here. I mean, Cole, do you think do you think he's just like pulling people's chains? He's just trying to get fun out of this? I think he's I think he's definitely just messing with people. I'd be curious to to hear his uh, brother's take on this. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that, everybody's called him Kelsey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and he's older than than Travis is, right? Yeah. He's been in the league longer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I think he's just messy. <laughs> I think he's just <laughs> messing with us, um, trying to create some 
he's he's a fun-loving guy. Yeah. He just likes messing with people, I think. He's 100% the guy that would want to mess with people in that way. But here's the other thing. like There was a Chiefs Reddit Twitter post, and some guy like brought this up actually before this happened. He said, how do we pronounce his last name? It has always stuck out to me that Andy Reid doesn't pronounce the E when talking about Travis Kelsey. He calls him Kels. The other day I watched a video where Mahomes did the same thing. Called him Kels instead of Kelsey. If anyone would know how to pronounce his name, it would be the guy we always see him hanging out with and the guy that coached both him and his brother. That being said, everyone else does pronounce the E. Is it a nickname for Reed and Mahomes, or are the rest of us just saying it wrong? And then, sure enough, again, this is what Travis Kelsey said. I got Kelsey and then Kels. My real name is Kels, so, I mean, I just kind of roll with the punches. So, I don't know. What are you going to call? Are you going to call him Kels from now on? I refuse to. I refuse. I refuse to. Uh, people have mispronounced my name my entire life. Yeah, did I mispronounce it? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, so I'm not going to give any quarter. I have no sympathy. He's going to learn how to deal with it. Uh, and we're going to call him Kelsey. If anyone has a uh, Westlake, Ohio phone book, uh, call his mother. Figure it out. Mm. I don't. I don't. I. I'm sure she'll know. She'll know better than Andy like, Reid. Like, do you get personal preference? On what your name is? Yeah. Like, I mean, could I go around saying my name is Derek Johansson if I wanted to? Yeah, and I'd probably try to call you it at least a couple times. You forget. I mean, it's kind of like uh, Tyrod Taylor, formerly known as Tyrod Taylor. Well, I'm sorry. Does, is, oh, you haven't heard this either. No. A couple years ago, Tyrod Taylor, this is when he was on the Browns, I believe, and they were on Hard Knocks. And he came out and said, yeah, my name is actually pronounced Tarod Taylor. Mm. And most people just have kind of blown by that and just been like, yeah, we've been calling you Tyrod for so long. Semi-related, do you think you've ever spelled Dwayne Wade's name correctly if you've ever written it out? No, no chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no chance. Um, that's one where you need a They have the rules like I before E except after C. It's just like. I don't even know. Is it D-Y or D-W-I? It's D-W-Y. It's, D- it's yeah. Dwayne. Dwayne. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I want to get a Travis Kels jersey where it just says K-E-L-C uh-huh. on the back of it now. I think that would be fun. I don't know. Like, this is I, – I don't know what to call him because, honestly, like, everybody's going to continue to call him Kelsey. I actually put up, like, a poll. Like, what are you going to continue to call him now that this came out? Um, 76%. Said Kelsey, but that does leave 24% who said Kels, and that's what he wants to be called. Now, I would be worried if I call him Kels that I'm going to be the butt of the joke, but it kind of would be fun to annoy people by saying Kels, so I might might, I might do that uh, from now on. Uh, the American League won the All-Star game last night 5-2 to two over the National League, and it was just a pure reminder of how the MLB, I think, is in really good hands with some of their young stars it's not just Shohei Otani, and he's he's a star. He's not really one of the really young stars. He's 27 years old. Um, the guys I'm talking about, Vladimir Guerrero, who won the All-Star MVP, hit like a near 500-foot home run. He's 22. Bo Bichette's 23. Rafael Devers is 24. Fernando Tatis is 22. Uh, Juan Soto's 22. Ozzy Albies. All those guys are 24 younger, um, and they were hitters that appeared in the game last night. And if you do want to grow the list to guys who are 26, 27 years old, you have Shohei Otani, you have Cedric Mullins, Brian Reynolds, and the list kind of goes on and on there, um, even if you count the pitchers. The game is just filled with young talent last night, and I thought it was super exciting. You watched the game last night. I'll be honest, like I didn't watch much of the game just because 
it doesn't do much for me being an exhibition. I, I'm more so I'm speaking from like the state of the game overall. Did you enjoy watching the All Star game last night? Um, I, I can't say that I de- that I did. Mm. Uh, watching Vlad Guerrero Jr. hitting that massive homer, 468 feet, insane. It was cool, but you know, I also just watched the home run derby the night before, and I did enjoy watching the home mm-hmm. run derby quite a bit. Uh. What you said about the young players, I definitely am on board with that. Uh, it seems like we have a lot of really, really great young players. Um, it does always annoy me how long the Japanese players stay in the Nippon Professional League. Um, Ichiro stayed there forever. He didn't come over till he was like 28 or something like that, and he won MVP and Rookie of the Year in his first season. So it always feels to me like if these guys came over three years earlier, they'd end up way better uh historically because they'd have more time to generate these awards. Ichiro had a super long career, but there's no guarantee that someone like Shohei will. Yeah, I mean, with Ichiro, they always mentioned like, oh, he has this many hits, but they were combining the two. Like, he never got to 3,000 in the MLB, which he surely would have if he was there the whole time. Otani did come over at a, at a relatively young age, especially compared to the others. I mean, he was, I think, 24, 25 when he came over. Um, but, yeah, when you think of, like, some of those other players, whether it's Ichiro, whether it's a guy like Kenta Maeda or um, a guy who on the Mariners, uh, uh, Hisashi Iwakuma, or um, if you kind of go down the list of guys, a lot of them are coming over when they're kind of entering their prime or maybe at the back end of their prime in their late 20s or early 30s. Shohei Otani is just it's so fun to watch. And watching him start the game and then going out there and hitting leadoff, I, I really wanted to see him go out there and, and strike out the side when he pitched and then just hit like a 500-foot home run, <laughs> which didn't end up happening. I I did see one idea. I saw somebody on Twitter saying that um, they should actually make the All-Star game, like forget the All-Star pitchers. Like the pitchers should be recognized as All-Stars, but I want to see just like fans pitch so that the hitters can hit these 500-foot home runs and we just get this... 50 to 40 game. There's always this uh, thing on the internet where people go, I don't want to watch just the Olympics. I want to watch seven Olympic sprinters and then one dude they pick at random from the stadium to race against the seven Olympic sprinters. That's how I want to watch the Olympics. That's what this sounds like. This is that idea, but for baseball. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, you have an all-star game for the hitters where you have just random fans pitch and get crushed, and then you have a all-star game for the pitchers, I guess, where you have random fans take – batting against the different pitchers. What if they take a beanball? What if you take 100 well, miles an hour to the no, ribs? No, we'll put, we'll put like the big uh, – well, I guess that doesn't help the the hitters, but I was going to say in front of the pitchers we could put the big uh, the blowback net or whatever they call it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that would suck if you get hit by Max Scherzer. You just have to sh- sign a waiver, you know? It's just part <laughs> of the risk. You can give a spider tack if you want and get a little bit of grip on it. Um, but you know what was interesting too? Like looking at all the young players in that game – I find it very unique that it's a lot easier for hitters to come up in the MLB and kind of dominate or show their success right away as opposed to pitchers. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen with pitchers. It's just a little more rare. So there were 41 different hitters who appeared in the All-Star game last night between the National League and the American League. There were 19 different pitchers who appeared in the game between the American League and National League. Of the hitters... Six of the 41 were 25 or younger. Six of the 41 were 24 or younger in the game. Of the pitchers, which that works out to be about 15%. Of the pitchers, only two were 25 or younger, which isn't that much different than a percentage. It's 11% of the ones that appeared. 
But if you take the ones that are 24 younger, it's just one of the 19. When you look at hitters on the all-star team, either all-star team that are 30 or older, 37% of the all-star players who played last night that were hitters, 37% were 30 or older. Of the pitchers who appeared in the all-star game last night, of the 11 or of the 19 that appeared, 11 were 30 or older. So almost 60% of the pitchers that we saw in last night's all-star game were 30 years or older. And the final number, if you just total up of the 41 hitters, average age is about 28. The average age of the 19 pitchers was about 30. So there is clearly a disparity between what it takes to be a good hitter and coming up right away versus being a good pitcher. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's a reactionary thing where your reflexes are at a higher rate when you're younger. So maybe that's helpful, whereas with pitching, you have to figure more stuff out. But I think it rings true when you think of a lot of these good pitchers. A lot of them might not have a breakout season until they're somewhere between 27, 28, 29 years old. I just find that very interesting with the MLB that hitters, you need young guys, but with pitching, you're fine being more in that 28, 30, 35 kind of range. I think you also need to consider the defensive value that position players add, right? When you're young, you can play like center field or the corner outfield uh, spots and make these great plays because you have you know, you're super quick. Now there's some who aren't right. Juan Soto is not particularly fast. Juan Soto's value comes almost entirely from his bat, but a lot of these other young outfielders, that's where they can excel. They can excel by generating like defensive wins. Um, or you're really fast on the base paths and you generate uh, like base runner value. They're not just generating uh, value by their ability to make guys uh, strike out or you know may, or induce weak contact like uh, younger pitchers. When you're a younger position player, there's two other ways, really important ways that you can generate value that benefit from you being younger. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, and with pitchers, we've seen it before. I mean, Lance Lynn was in the All Star game last night. You have your Bartolo Colones of the world who. They're not guys who you think of as physical specimens or anything, but that, like, you don't need the athleticism as much, so to speak. So the age thing isn't as big of a deal. I think that's interesting. Um, the only other question, like, that I was sitting there watching the All Star game wondering about last night Shohei Otani obviously gets all these um, just amazing hype and, and celebration around him just over the fact that he is a two way player. Now, obviously, in basketball, being a two-way player is required uh, part of the game. Do you think we'll ever see that in football, a two-way player in the NFL? Like, we see it in high school all the time. We see it sometimes in college. Obviously, we used to see it in the NFL. I don't think we'll ever see it with a quarterback. Teams will be too. If it's a good quarterback, you're not going to put Patrick Mahomes to safety. He's too valuable a quarterback, right? But do you ever think we'll see that guy who, like, maybe he's an all-pro receiver and an all-pro cornerback, or he's an all-pro running back and an all-pro linebacker? I think the problem is that he's going to get gassed, right? So the question you're going to be dealing with is, is he good enough? Let's say that when he's gassed, he's nine, he's 80% as good, right? Is um, having a, an 80, him at 80% playing corner and wide receiver better than having him at 100% playing wide receiver and having a worse player at 100% playing corner? And I think the answer is very frequently going to be no. There's, there's just too much energy expended, uh, especially from positions that are running every single play, like wide receivers and corners, right? Um, that I just don't think it's uh, really viable. I think you could see maybe like a running back who also does d like a line running back linebacker or something like mm -hmm. that. 
Um, but then you would get into like size issues where the sizes might not line up the way you want yeah. them to. I, I think the issue there is that you might be like a, a secondary running back. I don't I don't think we'll see it where like they're all pro on both mm-hmm. sides of the yeah, ball yeah, or yeah. pro bowl on both sides of the ball. Like you could see it where maybe a fullback is like a defensive lineman because fullbacks just aren't used as much, so you don't need them as much. That would be kind of interesting to me. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I think we're kind of far and away from seeing that, which makes Shohei Otani even more uh, of a unicorn just in the sports world overall. He's Cole Cedabutar. Probably mispronounced his last name again. Why don't you just tell me how to pronounce it? Cedabutar. Cedabutar. Cole Cedabutar. I'm Derek Johnson. Jesse Newell is going to join us in about 20 minutes here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. About 20 till the top of the hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017-1320-KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me is Cole Butar. now joined by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star. Uh, Jesse had quite the piece at KansasCity.com and in the Kansas City Star, which I would highly recommend checking out um, and giving a click to, discussing this situation that occurred under Les Miles and Jeff Long um, with four players and Caperton Humphrey was the name of the former KU player who was a transfer from Eastern Kentucky, came into the program, had some arguments and some difficulties with some teammates. It led to some major issues off the field, and then it was just completely bungled, which honestly is no surprise now looking back on the Les Miles and Jeff Long tenure by that whole thing. Uh, So now we are joined by Jesse Newell. Jesse, uh, I guess the first thing I have to ask for you, what issue or dispute just cannot be solved by an Oklahoma drill? Yeah, um, I know a lot of people have kind of centered around that. And, uh, you know, Les Miles, how the uh, family alleged he tried to deal with the situation, uh, obviously the argument between four teammates and, and Caper and Humphrey. But, yeah, a lot of people have gravitated toward that. And, again, like you said, I, I encourage people to read because there's a lot in there and there's a lot to get through. And that's the reason that these sorts of stories, um, they take – Months. I mean, they, they take months to go through. I think first started this thing in March. And so, you know, you go get piece by piece. You contain your report. You know, you, you make sure that uh, you, you get as much as you can about the, the story situation. And then you, you keep reporting after that and, and contact everybody at the very end before it goes to run to see um, what, what their views on, on this is, are as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. But uh, obviously, I, I think the main thing, and you mentioned this before, is just sort of with the text messages, the emails. Um, the, the non-disparagement agreement we were able to get, uh, the police report, the 911 records. A, a lot of that, though, kind of centers towards how KU dealt with this situation when it came to Caper and Humphrey. Because like we all know that there's lots of um, you know, disputes that happen on team every year, disagreements, and that's going to happen when you have 100 people in the same place a lot of the time and, and you know doing the same things together a lot. But, again, spelling out exactly what happened when it came to uh, in the moment, how that was being dealt with, and, and kind of having that spelled out through text messages, emails, all those sorts of things. I think that's really kind of what the, the story is and, and getting a peek behind the curtain of how KU decided and chose to deal with this particular situation. Yeah, I, I we went over this on Monday, obviously, and we, we didn't get to everything because there was so much in there, and I didn't want to either because there's so much great reporting in the story. And again, I'm imploring people to go check it out. Um, but the thing I came away with it at the very end was, you know, obviously what went on with the players in that dispute was not good. But the biggest takeaway for me was just the inability to do anything right there in that circumstance with less miles. And the other part of it that I didn't really understand, maybe you can explain this to me, uh, the David Reed part of it, because it seems very odd to me 
that David Reed would, because again, in the reporting, it mentions that he says this is by my account and my account alone. I forget the exact terminology that was used there. It made it sound like it was done all by himself, but I, I have a very hard time believing that something like this big of a story wouldn't at least go through the higher-ups like Jeff Long at the athletic department. Yeah, and so it, it, you put all the pieces together with this. Uh, David Reed, as mentioned in there, was a lifelong friend of Caperton Humphrey's dad, Jamie. And so they've known each other uh, for a long, long time. And uh, Jamie was a big reason uh, – I'm sorry, David was a big reason that Caperton made it to Kansas because he was the one that showed film of Caperton to KU's coaches and said, hey, check this guy out. Maybe you'd be interested in having him at Kansas and you know, having him on as a walk-on, those sorts of things. Um, but through all that, you know, it, it makes you wonder uh, with this particular scenario, you know, was David trying to basically work this all out because it was his friend, it was his family that he knew, and, you know, maybe take, took on a larger role with this because of the previous relationship that he had with the family. Because you mentioned it, it's like um, I, I talked to somebody in there, and then we have that in the piece, a, a former Big 12 compliance director who worked with a Big 12 school, was in the compliance field and a compliance director for more than 20 years. And, you know, I spoke to him about the situation because it's the same thing. You know, when, when you're learning these details, you, you don't have the context to start it out with because, you know, I don't know exactly. I mean, I can think about it, but I don't know exactly what goes on in the compliance office at an athletic department. So I don't know, you know, but potentially does this stuff happen all the time? Do, do compliance directors sign off on bond disparagement agreements and things like that? So like I said, I spoke to that a gentleman who was in for 20, you know, 20 plus years of compliance and asked him, hey, is this something that's common? Is this something that crossed your desk often when you were in the same sort of role? Excuse me. And he said, no. He said, this seems very unique. Uh, Nothing like that had ever crossed his desk. And if it had, he said he would have immediately sent it to legal because uh, non-disparagement agreements is is basically something for the lawyers and for the people uh, that that are not, um, you know, him in in his particular case. And again, he sort of said that in the quote, basically saying that's his personal opinion on how he would deal with things. So I think you're right on there that it, it makes you wonder about the situation. Um, you know, Bigry potentially knew the family well, potentially wanted to, um, you know, work things out with them, um, as you saw in the text messages and the emails with that. But it, it's very hard to believe that Jeff Long, the athletic director, would have had no knowledge of what was taking place in the situation that happened. So it is sort of interesting that, that David Reed's name is on that document. You would assume that the athletic director's name would be on the document because, again, he's the, he's the head onto. He's the one that's at the very top of the organization. But, um, yeah, the, the, those things, um, I, I think, uh, again, with what we have in, in the document and what we have in the story, um, you know, you can, you can see that a lot of different ways. But I, I, to get directly to your question, I would be very, very surprised if Jeff Long had no knowledge that David Reed was working with his family and, and enacting this document and signing this document. It definitely seems like something that a life director would be aware of at the very least as this thing was going on. It just makes you think, too, like what else happened in the program that we might never hear stories about? Like the handling from Les Miles of some of this stuff, just talking about like uh, meeting with the players uh, who were involved in this. And and I, I don't know the, the whole obviously we, we won't be there the whole side of this. Like what was what were the arguments about? Like why were they going at each other? But the handling of Les Miles with just telling the players, hey, you better watch your back. Like, you better be more careful from here on out. Like, that sounds like, I made this comparison on Monday, that sounded like my dad when I was 12 years old, and me and my friends wanted to go, like, doorbell ditch somewhere, and or go, you know, and he's just like, well, I had nothing to do with it, just don't get caught. 
And it's like that, but it's it's obviously a much more severe uh, level of consequence there. Some of the handling, I just, I just don't understand. And I, I don't really know what to do with the Les Miles and Jeff Long part of it from now on because this isn't a situation where either one of them is employed anymore. So it's not like we go to the immediate reaction of, well, they need to pay for this. They need to be fired. They need to do this or that. I, I guess, what is this? Do we just kind of chalk this up as a bookend to a bad era for the KU football program? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the reporting is reporting, so I think a lot of people have obviously taken a lot of different ways. Uh, like, to, to me, just having it laid out, how this thing went out in real time, and again, having the text messages between the dad and David Reed, you can kind of follow the narrative of how it happened in the moment. Again, it's, it's one thing for Jamie's dad to tell us that, you know, the fans scared for Caperton. It's another thing to read a text message in the story where Jamie is telling David Reed that, you know, the day after – or a couple days after when he's asking, you know, if Capron's going to stay to basically say, well, he's, he's thinking about it, but his mom needs assurances that he's not going to get killed, um, that sort of thing. So I think that just gives a different level to it. But you're right, it is, um, you know, those two guys are gone now. So that um, is obviously an era that ended, and it ended for different reasons. Um, you know, David Reed, you know, remains as the compliance director. So um, that's really the only person when it comes to the, the main characters in this that remains around KU. But uh, it's probably, um, you know, Travis Goff is the new AD, and he obviously got brought in to, um, <laughs> to take over a situation that has its challenges, obviously. But I guess the question that, that you can't answer particularly, uh, and, and that's something that Travis Goff will probably have to look at, is, you know, is it, when these things happen, as you mentioned, is this a, a personnel thing where it's going wrong, um, the people or is this a culture thing where it's going wrong? Um, and, you know, potentially the things that are out there. So, again, that's all stuff that Travis Goff will have to look at and sort through and, and figure out for himself. But you're right in the fact that uh, for Kansas, if, if you are a Kansas fan out there and you're looking um, at some of the events that have taken place lately, the, the positive with it is that KU did move on um, from some people that were involved in some things recently and, and are no longer, those guys are no longer employed at the university. So, you know, Travis Goff has his own vision, Lance Leipold has his own vision, and uh, potentially they can move forward from that and, and not really have to, to think about those sorts of things because uh, those are the two new guys in charge. We're talking with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star here on RCST. How much of, I guess, if you were like ranking most important things for Lance Leipold to do at KU, how high up there does just fixing the KU cult, and I don't even mean the, the win-loss culture, the the studying right practice habits, stuff like that culture, just the culture in general, like how much of fixing the KU culture, how high does that go up on the list for Lance Leipold's priorities at KU? Yeah, I think he walked in and he already had it high on, on the priority list, and that's how you rebuild football programs. And, um, you know, we just talked to uh, Chris Simpson, the linebackers coach, a few um, and he kind of said the same thing. He's like, I know everybody says this, but the real way to get things turned out is culture. You know, you, you got to get people in here that are going to hold each other accountable and, and really raise the standards. So it's something that, you know, it's a buzzword already. Obviously, you know, a lot of coaches are going to bring that, but I think it's something that this staff really obviously believes in and it's something that they saw success with both the last two places that they were and it led to success overall. Uh, once that whole thing got established. So it was already going to be important. And, you know, he also, uh, Lance Leipold mentioned the word continuity, which I think sort of goes hand-in-hand with culture. You, know, you get people 
especially players there for two, three, four years who understand how things are supposed to be done and, and start to do things uh, in the proper way. And, and you have those guys teach the next round. And you kind of have seen this, um, right, at least from a, you know, a pure performance standpoint from KU basketball, right? I mean, Bill Self's main motto is that faces change, expectations don't. I mean, it's just no matter who comes to Kansas, the expectation automatically is, is you don't lose a bunch of canes. You know, you, you win the conference title. You are a one or a two seed, all those sorts of things. And um, it seems to me that KU football, uh, sometimes in the past, you know, when things on field have gone wrong, it's kind of had the, the opposite chemistry or the opposite culture, which is if anything goes wrong, it's sort of here we go again, and, and the kind of the snowball rolls down the hill in the wrong direction from there. So, yeah, I'd expect that coaching staff to come in here, and, and if you're going to build a program like you did at Buffalo, you're probably doing it the same sort of way, and the fact that those guys have brought up that word a lot and continuity a lot and all those sorts of words you would expect a lot, it's going to be one of the biggest things that he's going to be brought here to do and one of the biggest focuses he has, especially in his first year at Kansas when the results might not come, but the establishment of what they want to build is going to be there and is going to be something that's very important. Do you think that's the biggest reason that you have so many new faces coming over from Buffalo, why they would want to do that just to bring the culture? I mean, forget the – obviously they want the on-field results, but it seems like to me that would be the most important thing at this juncture. I think it's critical. Some of these guys, you know, you bring in and they understand what it's like under Lance Leipold. They understand what it's like under the assistant coach. They understand – what the standard was at Buffalo that helped bring them out of the hole that they were in as a program uh, when it came to performance. So, yeah, I think um, you probably pick and choose there. You probably don't take everybody. You probably don't take guys that you know that um, wouldn't potentially help with that. But the other part of this, too, and, and this kind of goes kind of hand-in-hand with the new transfer rule and um, everything. You know, a guy like Mike Nowitzki coming in, the center who was ranked fourth, the fourth-best center in the nation by Pro, Pro Football Focus, had offers out there from well, this interest from teams like Michigan and Texas, he comes to Kansas, and I think that's sort of something you want to build. I mean, he wants to be around Lance Leipold. He wants to be around Scott Fuchs, the offensive line coach. And um, in today's era, where you know you can obviously be good for a lower-level team, and then if you want to transfer next year and haven't done so before, you can do so without penalty. It's going to be really important for a program like Kansas football to not only get kids and develop them, but have a culture and have a, a, a an aspect around the program where – the guys want to stay. You know, they want to be around these coaches. They want to be around this program. They, they don't, um, you know, have a negative experience and, and, and feel like they, they want to be somewhere else. So we'll see how that all pans out for Kansas football. Again, that's going to be an added challenge with trying to rebuild a program in the current times and um, with, with everything and the new rules that are out there. But, I, again, if it's going to work from Lance Bible to Kansas, uh, these aren't just going to be buzzwords. Those are going to be things that are very important with the program. It's going to be a reason that Kansas is able to build out of the hole that's built for itself in the last, 11 or 12 years just based off of a coach coming in and, and trying to establish his, his culture and doing things the right way as he has at previous stops. Talking with Jesse Newell, the Kansas City Star, for a few more minutes here on RCST. I do want to ask you a basketball-related question. Uh, Kofi Coburn is committing on Friday. There was a report in The Athletic today from Kyle Tucker that he would not be choosing Kentucky, and it was going to be between either going back to Illinois or going, going to Florida State. Let's say hypothetically, and Marcus Carr, I think, is still available as well. So let's say hypothetically, Kofi Coburn or Marcus Carr calls Bill Self and says, I want to go there, but there's obviously no scholarships. What is stopping KU or any of these other schools from basically using NIL to have a walk-on, basically be on scholarship with the amount of money you'd be paying them, and should a school look at doing that? <laughs> well, it's a hypothetical, obviously. Um, I- 
I think what would stop a coach from doing that is the potential fallout from the other guys he already has. And at some point, you just have enough players. And to be completely honest with you, I mean, 13 scholarship players for basketball is probably too much to begin with. I mean, you don't need 13 players. If you have the worst injury season of all time, you're still going to have eight or nine players left, and that's plenty to go in basketball games, even at the highest level. So, um, again, it's a hypothetical. Maybe down the line that'll be uh, something, and we've all seen the stories out there of the Board of States of the world or, you know, the booster screening LLCs to see if they can legally pay players, all those sorts of things, and all that stuff will get sorted out here in, in due time, I'm sure, but I would think the main thing that would keep coaches from doing that is just um, at some point you probably are going to have diminishing returns when you loaded up your roster for Kansas' sake with 14 scholarship players, including um, not to mention a guy like Dave McCormick, who I was looking to this the other day, probably is fringe, if not all Big 12 first-team preseason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. um, At that point, if you're just, uh, basically running off uh, a four-year guy or basically m- turning him into a reserve when he was already going to potentially be the all an all-Big 12 first-team player going into his senior season, um, you, you might have some difficulties trying to uh, get other guys on the line or, or get commitment from players to uh, or, you know, think that you have your back, your, they're back to begin with. So, again, to me, that's kind of the bigger picture of it is is wanting to, we just talked about the culture, you know, establish a culture where, where you're trusted and, and the things like that don't go potentially really wrong for you. But, again, coaches are there to win, and, and they have the great pressure to bring in the best players possible. So maybe we'll see something like that down the line, but I would think that it would come with some major risks, especially in basketball where uh, 13 scholarship players is already a whole lot. Yeah, I think I agree with you. You don't want to mess with the locker room that much, but I think where it might actually come into play is like imagine if KU with NCAA sanctions potentially coming. We don't know what's going to happen with the IARP, but imagine if they do get popped for whatever and they say, hey, you're going to have a loss of two scholarships over the next two or three years. You could just use it at that point to skirt around that rule, right? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's, I don't Darren, maybe you need to be like uh, consulting <laughs> for these NCAA teams. You're coming up with some new stuff here. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really thought about that turning these into these punishments into non-punishments, but I just talked about it. It's a new world, man. I mean, it is it is pretty crazy, you know, to to think that um, the workarounds that potentially might be out there for schools if if you're able to legally do things through NIL. And at this point, you sort of have to makeshift rules out there that nobody, um, you know, different for almost everybody. You're kind of policing yourself, and if you don't want to police yourself, then, you know, there's probably not going to be too much out there to stop you from doing what you want to do. So, yeah, that's something to watch moving forward. But, uh, like I said, big picture with this, and I've kind of been consistent all along, is that a long time these players have deserved to have this. I mean, you know, you see the number 22 Kansas jersey at the KU bookstore. You knew it was Andrew Wiggins, and that's where the jerseys were selling, but he wasn't getting any money off of that. So if these kids make some money along the way, they've been owed that for a long time. So I think power to them and, and good on them for being able to do this now and, and being able to, to make some money on the side off of, uh, obviously, the popularity of KU basketball and, and what they've been able to, to, to do to establish that. You need to spend more time around CJ because I, I think he'd be mad at you if he said number 22, Andrew Wiggins. Number 22 is Marcus Morris, Jesse. He is Jesse Newell uh, of the Kansas City Star. <laughs> Thanks for joining us as always, Jesse. He would absolutely say that. What a market there. <laughs> all right, have a good rest of your day. That is Jesse Newell. Again, check out all his great reporting in the Kansas City Star at KansasCity.com. One hour down, two to go. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. 
Four o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, and streaming online at klwn.com. Derek Johnson in with me is Colsey Butar. KU's third non-conference opponent actually comes after they play a conference opponent. They have the first two weeks, which are Friday night games, taking on South Dakota and then Coastal Carolina, who we previewed yesterday and Monday. Then they play Baylor in week three, but then they go back out of the non-conference. They go on the road to Durham and take on the Duke Blue Devils, which I think this is the the return end of a home-and-home, which KU played about five or six years ago and got thumped at home um, in Memorial Stadium. So now, as we've been doing all week, we're continuing our previews of KU football's opponents. Duke, the final non-conference opponent. We're joined now by Steve Wiseman, who is a writer for the Herald Sun and news observer in North Carolina. Steve, thank you for joining us on today's show. Uh, David Cutcliffe has kind of figured it out at Duke, or he did for a while, it seemed, there, having some really strong seasons at a program that maybe hasn't always seen that on the football field, but they took a pretty big step back last season and going two and nine. So what went so wrong for the blue devils in 2020? Yeah, they, they had just a horrific problem with turnovers. They turned the ball over more than anybody in the country, um, almost four times per game in, in going three and or two and nine. So they had close to 40 turnovers as a team, which that's why you go two and nine when you do that kind of stuff. Most of that fell on the on the quarterback Chase Bryce, who had been Trevor Lawrence's backup at Clemson. He came to Duke as a grad transfer. They thought he was going to be the answer, and you know the pandemic hit. He had no way to prepare. There was no off season. Uh, he basically came in, and they had you know practice in August, and then a few weeks they had the game, and um, they just weren't able to get him ready for whatever reason. It didn't work out, and. Um, so he's moved on and he's now in Appalachian state, but, um, that's where Romania came from. They, they turned the ball over too much and the off season of not having a spring practice and, and all the work you do in the off season really, really cost this program last year. Yeah. I mean, how much specifically for a program like Duke, who is more about and Kansas is the same way, which has to be more about the development and the X's and O's and being coached up properly. How much do you think that affected Duke last year with the COVID shortened offseason compared to maybe some other teams who maybe they do have more of those four or five stars in the program. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. I mean, this isn't a program that brings in four and five star guys. They they thrive getting three star guys mostly. So every once in a while they get a four star, but mainly it's, it's three stars make up their whole class. Then they develop them over time, and and then you know they produce. Uh, quality players. That's that's and quality seasons. Frankly, you know, since Cutcliffe got it turned around uh, and they went to their first, they went to a bowl in 2012, first time they've been in one since '94, and then they went to bowls in six of the last next seven years, and and so um, they had a go in there, and then the last couple of years they've they've regressed, and last year they really hit rock bottom. That's the worst season they've had under Cutcliffe, two and nine. So, yeah, the development factor is is big for Duke. They have to develop guys. Over time, um, work them in the off season, that kind of stuff, and um, and build them up, and, and it just it really it really hurt them more than just anybody else. We're talking with Steve Wiseman here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Overall, as an overlook on the offense, what would you say the strength of the offensive side of the ball should be? Well, it's going to be in the backfield with the running back Mateo Durant, who's who's going to be a senior, and he's he's gotten a little, little bit better every year as he's gone along. Last year, he averaged almost seven yards a carry. 
he let, uh, led the team in rushing with uh, over 800 yards of rushing. And, um, you know, he, he's a guy that, that's probably going to be playing on Sundays after after this season. He's got that kind of talent. Um, they were able to get him away from some SEC offers that have come in for him, and they've developed him. and And he'll be the he'll be the bell cow running back. I mean, they usually like to spread it around and and, and not use one guy the majority of the game. And uh, but with with Durant, he can catch the ball out of the backfield. He can he can run between the tackles. He's got some breakaway speed. He's one of the better running backs returning the ACC, and so I know they're going to build their offense around him. What about the weaknesses on that side of the ball? Is quarterback a big question mark? Where do you go for that questions that you would be worried about Duke in 2021? Yeah, definitely um, quarterback because it's it's an unknown. This is uh, Gunnar Holmberg is, is stepping in as the number one quarterback, and he's been in the program since 2018. He was a, a freshman the last year that Daniel Jones, who's now with the Giants, was Duke's quarterback. And Gunner's had injury problems. He's he's hurt his knee um, a couple times, and so he had to miss, um, you know, a whole season in 2019, which he was expected to be kind of the backup that year and then step into the starting role last year. And that's why they had to bring in Chase Bryce as kind of a stopgap because Gunner just wasn't ready. And so now that Chase is gone, Gunner's the guy. Uh, um, and but he's not played very much. And even last year, when he played a little bit in relief with Chase Bryce, he fumbled the ball some too. So there's a lot of questions there. They seem to be excited about what he's shown, you know, in spring ball and everything. But again, once until he gets in there and proves it, I mean that's a that's a horrible position to have a you know question mark at. But that's where they are coming into the season. On the other side of the ball, the defense returns a handful of starters. But they lost a lot on the defensive line. How much are they going to be missing on that front um, defensively? Yeah, they, they lost a lot of production and and experience up front with Chris Rump, um, Victor Dibakaji were both drafted into the NFL at defensive end. Drew Jordan uh, decided to take his his super senior year um, because of the COVID to transfer to Michigan State. So. They're going to have, uh, you know, three new starters up there, um, and and that's that's tough to uh, that's tough to build up again. You know, they're going to have three sophomores that are going to be starting there. It looks like they have just played, you know, just barely played a little bit. You know, as freshmen, a couple of redshirt sophomores. They've been in the program three years. So that goes back to the development thing. But but again, you're talking about question marks there, right? And so um, that's that's a big area of concern. Now they they've done a good job recruiting there lately and they've again produced NFL guys but but these are unknown guys coming in so they're gonna to have to prove they can handle it I, I guess I'll ask the same question I asked about the offense what would you say the strength is what would you say the weakness is do you start with the weakness on the defensive line yeah that definitely would be the weakness up there because um because of the new guys and frankly you know they have some experience on the back end but the the guys that are there haven't played very well, and then maybe that's a bad thing, right? I mean, they gave up they gave up thirty eight points a game last year, and and part of that was the turnovers on the offense, putting the defense in bad positions. But frankly, the last half of the year, the defense was not very competitive. I mean, they got lit up bad by bulls from you know down the road in Chapel Hill. Sam Howell just lit them up big time. Um, but even teams that weren't very good, uh, Georgia Tech, Florida State, which wasn't great last year you know, put up a lot of points against them. And so um, they have some, some some things to answer about that secondary, about why they 
why they weren't very good stopping big plays. And they really haven't been very good the last two years giving up a lot of big plays. Now, the strength would be at linebacker. They have experienced guys that, have, that are proven productive players there. Uh, middle linebacker Shaka Hayward is a, is a redshirt junior. And the other guy coming back as starter is Rocky Shelton, also a redshirt junior. Two linebackers. They, they play a 4-2-5 alignment, so you have two linebackers up there. And those guys have played the most and, and had, you know, again, the most production. So um, you kind of build around, you, get, you got two guys strong in the middle, and then you got to, you know, up front and then behind them, you got a lot of questions. Talking with Steve Wiseman, writes for the Herald Sun and News Observer in North Carolina, previewing Duke as that is KU's third and final non conference opponent this season. Um, I know you haven't been covering KU, obviously, but from the outside looking in, into this KU football program, how far off do you think Duke is as from what they were in 2020 and are expected to be in 2021 to what you kind of view Kansas from the outside looking in as now? Yeah, I mean, Kansas really, you know, I mean, is really rock bottom, right? I mean, they've uh, they've had a lot of problems winning, and, and now there's some culture issues. It That's been like. a term and, we've thrown out a lot. And you would imagine how many times you can hit rock bottom. Yeah. Um, let's say rock chalk Jayhawk, right? Not rock bottom, but here you are, right? Again. And and I know this, this series with Duke has been interesting because in 2009, you know, Duke played Kansas out there and Kansas, you know, beat him pretty good. And that's when Kansas was a pretty good program. And then I know they came in here about five years ago, maybe. And, and that's the game that Duke, you know, really ran them out of the place and, and dominated. That's when Duke was was winning, you know, nine, ten games a year in the middle of the last decade when they really had a, had a good good team. So um, they've kind of missed each other. One's been good, one's been horrible, then reverse it. Now they're kind of both at a down point. Duke came off a really bad season, and there's a lot of question marks here. I mean, this is Cutcliffe's 13th year. He's got to prove he can get this thing turned back around. Um, uh, and get him going back to bowl games again. And this, you know, from a Duke point of view, they look at this game with Kansas as one maybe they, they should win. It's at home. Uh, we know the problems Kansas has had. If Duke is really, you know, if last year was really an anomaly, which they all, everybody in that program is preaching, it's got to be proven, but they're, they're preaching that that's not going to happen again. We're not going to be back a two-win team. they got to win against Kansas. They have to. If Kansas comes in here and wins, then then that's lights out. I mean, that, that, that tells you that Duke – is more like the 2020 team than maybe the 2018 or 2017 team they had that went to bowl games. Yeah, I always find it interesting kind of taking a look from the other side because, you know, the view here is obviously, well, can we pull an upset somewhere? But the view from the other side is probably always, well, we got to win this one for sure. So uh, he is Steve Wiseman. Again, you can check out all his work in the Herald Sun and the News Observer in North Carolina. Steve, thank you so much for your time, and uh, maybe we'll be talking to you down the road when KU plays Duke later this year. Very good. I'd like to do it. Thanks, Derek. See you. All right. Steve Wiseman joining us here on RCST. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up on the other side, British Open is tomorrow. Let's give you our golf picks. Welcome back in. Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lesky is going to join us in about 10 minutes from right now here on RCST. We're going to talk Royals. Uh, their draft, who they got, maybe some weird things they did in the draft, and also look ahead to 
what is there to look forward to in the second half of the season? All that with David Lesky of Inside the Crown coming up after this. But right now, it is the day before the it's it's officially called the 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 Open. Most people know it as the British Open. They're very hoity-toity about it. It's officially called the Open. So if you're just amongst like common people, I guess that's a weird way of putting it. Uh, you can call it the British Open. I don't really care to be honest. Um, but yeah, if you, if you were around somebody who like, there will be certain people that very much care if you do not call it the Open. I'll keep that in mind. Okay. So good to know. So I'm going to help Cole out here. Um, Payday's I, tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So how much of the payday do you want to use on betting on, on the Open here? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll start off with this quick preview. It wasn't played last year due to COVID. The previous winner, 2019, it was Shane Lowry. year before, it was Francesco Molinari, who beat Tiger Woods. The host this year is Royal St. George, who last hosted in 2011. That was when Darren Clark, who won, he was like 150 to 1 odds. 2003, it was hosted here. Ben Curtis, it was his first time playing in the event. He was like 300 to 1 odds. He ended up winning it. So clearly, there are some underdogs winning it. Um, the city this is taking place in, this is absolutely fantastic. The city, Sandwich, England. Is this where the Earl of Sandwich, who invented the sandwich, comes from? I was from? wondering that. I did. I should have done research on that, I, I would assume. Can yeah. we just assume? Let's just say yes. Let's just say yes. A wonderful town name. It's also a par 70. It plays tough. Uh, it, it's less about the length of the course. It's not an overly long course. The fairways aren't super thin. It's more about the weather. It's just links courses in general with the rain, the wind, um, the rough being kind of making things difficult here. So how I'm going to do this, I have 100 fake dollars to put together a purse. And we'll see if I end up winning money this week. I have no idea. Um, I'm going to give you some winning bets, some top five bets, top 10 bets, top 20s, as well over the course of these $100. I have 10 different $10 bets for you to put on there. Get rolling. All right, first up, $10 on Jordan Spieth. I want to I want to play a game here while we're doing this. You tell me if you know who the if you even know this. Is Why are you going to embarrass me like this, Darren? Do you know who, if Jordan Spieth? I have no okay. idea who that is. I love that. Uh, Jordan Spieth is eighteen to one. He's playing super well right now. His last eight appearances have netted a win, three top fives, so about fifty percent of the time. Five top tens. Seven of the eight appearances have been top twenties. His lowest finish is a top thirty, so playing great right now. And since twenty fifteen, he's performed really well. At the Open, his finishes, 4th, 30th, 1st, 9th, 20th. Jordan Spieth should at least be around in the conversation. I like that bet at 18-1. to 1. John Rahm's the favorite here at 8-1. to 1. And there is no better Lynx golf course player than John Rahm. He is an absolute stud. You know John Rahm, at least, yes, right? Yes, yes. Okay. okay, good. Um, He's playing out of his mind. He just won the U.S. Open. But at 8-1, to 1, those odds are really, really tough. So I'm going to take Jordan Spieth at 18 to 1. The other guy I'm going to dabble in as a winner is Brooks Kepka. He's also 18 to 1. Um, there's a lot of guys in that 18 to 1 range who you might like. Kepka, another one. He just always performs well in major tournaments. Do you know Brooks Kepka? I do not. Come on. All right. Brooks Kepka since 2015 10th, 6th, 39th, and 4th at the Open. So he's played well here as he does at all majors. Justin Ray of The Athletic made this note. He's a combined 84 under in the major championships dating back. I, I forget to get the date here, but that is 63 strokes better over that time span than any other player. He's also got back-to-back -back top five finishes in his last two events, including at the U.S. Open um, and three of the last four. The other one that he didn't get top five, he missed the cut. So that's kind of boom or bust, which has been the case for him this year. 
and that's kind of the case in a lot of other senses. He seems to care so much about the majors. Brooks Kepka is like, I'm trying to think of a good comparison since you don't know who he is. He is like that NBA player who um, maybe he's okay. Like, Rajon Rondo may be a oh, good yeah. example. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, he's fine in the regular season. He has a lot of negatives there as well. Um, but once you get to the playoffs, it's like, Rajon Rondo is actually, like, good, you know? Um, so... That's kind of him. Once it gets to the big moment, he's really good. He's missed the cut in six of his 15 appearances this year, but of the nine he's made his cut, seven of them have been top tens, and then obviously he performs well in the big majors. So 18-1, to one, I like Brooks Kepka there. I am going to get a little on John Rahm in a top five bet. He's plus 175. Good links player, tied 11th year in this event, not at this same location in 2019. Um, he's playing extremely well, as mentioned. So this is a safe money bet here. Yes. Okay. Plus 175, you basically would be almost tripling your money if you win the bet. Um, doubling your money and then getting your money back would be the way to put it. He's won his last two events he's played in. He has 11 top 10s in 18 events this season. 14 top 25s in 18 events. He's always around. Such a good golfer. Fits it. Give me him top five that he at least sticks around there at plus 175. The other top five bets I want. Xander Schauffele, he's 4-1, to one, and Rory McIlroy at 4-1. to one. Do you know either of those? I've heard of Rory McIlroy. I have not okay. heard of the first guy. Who's the first guy? Xander Schauffele. Xander Schauffele. Phenomenal Where's name. Where's he from? San Diego. San Diego. That's yes. a hell of a last name. Yes, it is. Um, he has gone 20th, 2nd, 41st at the Open before. Finished 10th most recently at the Scottish Open. He used a new putter after he didn't like his putting at the U.S. Open. He finished in the top uh, 10 at the U.S. Open. It was his third straight top 11 finish, and he's been in the top 19 and seven of the last eight. But despite doing well at the U.S. Open, he was in the bottom 15 in terms of statistically putting. So now he got a new putter, did well, finished top 10 at the Scottish Open. Alexander Schauffele for a top five. Rory McIlroy missed the cut last time. I saw this from Justin Ray as well from The Athletic. Eight of his last nine times that he's happened where he has missed the cut, he's gone on to finish in the top 20, he has three wins in such circumstances. So I like Rory to bounce back here. It's kind of a home course. He is from, I think, Ireland. Uh, it's like Northern Ireland or something. So this is right up his alley. Uh, top 10 bets, I'm just going to back up Brooks Kepka. I mentioned everything about him, how well he plays in this. So I want him to win, but also it's kind of a safety bet. Top 10, he's plus 170 there. And then Louis Oosthuizen has been playing very, very well so far this season. One of the best iron players on tour. He finished 54th. Last time this event was held here, that was in 2011. But he also has other strings of success here. He won it in 2010. He has three other top 20s. Got a runner-up finish in 2015. Mentioned he's playing well. He was 42nd at the BMW International um, overseas recently. But before that, he finished second to the U.S. Open, which capped off a five-tournament run where he went second, eighth, second, 18th, second on the PGA Tour. So give me him top 10. You can get him plus 270, which that's my favorite part about him. He's good odds to get top 10 here. Do you know Louis Oosthuizen? I do not. Okay. South but I Africa. do like those odds. I like the yeah, sound of those odds. That's what I like. All right. Top 20 bets. Jordan Spieth backing him up minus 110. So it's basically just an even bet that he finishes top 20. Xander Schauffele, same thing there. Basically an even bet. You're basically getting your double in your money if you're able to win it. Um, the last guy, this is more of an off-the-radar guy. Burned Wiesberger. There's no way you've heard of this guy. I had barely heard of him as well. He is... A guy who plays a lot better over in Europe. The PGA Tour doesn't count most of the European events. I think this one does count to the PGA Tour, the Open, but the rest don't. 
he typically plays well there. He struggles in the U.S. Uh, he finished 26th at the Scottish Open recently, 5th at the BMW International Open. He was 32nd in the Open in 2019. Does well overseas, and you can give it 4-1 to one to finish top 20. So I like $10 on that. So I hope you make money. All right. I, I, hope I, I got a notebook. I've, I've written all these down. I'm ready, man. He's <laughs> okay. Cole C. Butar. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, David Lesky inside the crown. Going to talk Royals and will be draft with us on the other side. Welcome back. Normally we talk Royals with David Lesky of inside the crown every Monday here on RCST. David was a little under the weather, but fighting through it now. Joins us on a Wednesday. Flexible with David Lesky again of Inside the Crown joining us now on the show. And actually, it kind of works out because now the MLB draft is at a complete conclusion for the Royals. Um, also, the All-Star festivities are all over, so we get to look ahead to the second half of the season. So maybe this actually ended up working out in the end. Uh, David, the first thing that I want to ask you about, because with the Royals taking Franklin Mozzicato, uh, the most Italian-sounding name, a Connecticut prep pitcher in the first round, a lot of the talk was, well, they're doing this to get a guy who's under slot value, and that was a term that was tossed around a lot during the MLB draft, saving some money to use it on other picks. Why does the overslot rule thing exist in terms of even having a cap to paying draft picks? Um, you know, honestly, it's because the Royals exploited it. Um, mm. and, and I'm not even joking. It is, well, it's not just the Royals. Other teams did too, but think back to what the Royals used to do. Think back to... Oh, the 2009 draft when they took Aaron Aaron Crow in the first round, and it took a catcher out of high school in the third round named Will Myers. Will Myers got first round money, so they spent a ton of money in that draft. The Royals, for all of their all of the talk about them being cheap, um, they spent some money in the draft. They used to really throw it around because I mean, look, what's the difference between? 12 million and 14 million or whatever. Um, and so th- there were teams that took advantage of that and they could get guys to say, I won't sign with you. I'm only signing with this team. And then, you know, it was only a matter of time before the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers of the world said, all right, well, we're going to give you 22 million to sign. If you say no to everybody else, we'll get you in the 12th round. And, and so, they developed this slot system, which is not perfect. Um, I think it actually hurts the small markets more than they intended. Because um, everything baseball does has an unintended consequence because they don't think everything through. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that, that's where it came from. And, and so now we've got this deal where they have a certain amount for the first 10 rounds. And then um, for every pick after that, they – can go up to $125,000, and every dollar over that counts against their slots, uh, their, their first 10-round slots. And so yeah, this year's draft was 20 rounds. It did had been 40 in the past. It was five last year. And, yeah, it was uh, – it, 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 it seemed like they were using that under-slot strategy with uh, Frank Mazzucato, who I really want to call Frank Mozzarella. Um <laughs> It's right there. It's just, I mean, when he throws a fastball, you can say he threw some mozzarella cheese. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> there, there's a lot there. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, that that that's where it came from. That's where the slotting system came from. It was I can't remember when when it was implemented. It, it was I want to say twenty twelve or thirteen was the first year. I know it was in there in twenty thirteen because the Royals went under slot with their first pick to get Hunter Dozier, and then spent the savings on Sean Mania with their second pick. And so I know it was in there then, uh, but I can't remember exactly when it went into place. But it, but it was it was at least. It was at least 2013 and maybe a year or two before that. Uh, so you mentioned the, the mozzarella cheese comparison, but what about the other end of this? What's going to prevent Mozzicato, an Italian-named guy, from being another Royals pitcher just throwing meatballs everywhere? How about that one? Oh, uh, no, we're done. Um, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> He's David Lesky. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, it's – uh, that, that, and, you know, that's the problem that I have with the pick, honestly, is – this Royals development system has not shown they can develop arms like, like Mozzicato. So, um, yeah, he might be throwing meatballs when it's all said and done. Um, but, I mean, that's a, there's, some, there's a lot to like about him. He's, well, one thing I liked a lot about this draft in particular is they seem to be targeting high-spin breaking balls, which it's teachable, but it's nice when they have that skill ahead of time where you don't have to teach them. Um, and and Mozakata has a really high spin curveball. It's a good pitch. It's it's a pitch that I, you can't teach somebody that good of a curveball. That's one of those things that you either have or you don't. You can improve people's curveballs, but they don't get as good as Mozakata's. Um, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Actually, is it Mozakato? Mozakato? Anyway, um, and he, and he has a fastball that has some has some hump to it, which is a good thing. So. And there, there's a lot to like about the guy. Um, it's just that number seven, you would have really hoped they would have gotten somebody. A little bit more exciting with their second or third pick. Um, and look, Ben Kuderna, I believe is how he says it, uh, the, the pitcher out of Blue Valley Southwest High School. Um, he he has a lot of upside, but again, he's another project. And the Royals, they have not shown themselves adept at developing projects. Um, that's not to say they can't or they won't. They just haven't really done very well with it in the past, and, and you worry that that will continue. And I guess with all the options that were on the board there for the Royals, I, I think that maybe makes it a little bit more infuriating for some fans. I know a lot of people wanted Kumar Rocker, even if you wanted to go the hitter route, Brady House was still out there, some other names. And the MLB draft is one of those things where it's not like the NFL draft, or if you get picked in the first round, we're expecting you to start right away, obviously. I, I joked about this the other day, like, they might almost be better off just like basically taping the drafts ahead of time. And then every year we just play the draft from like three or four years ago. So that way we can actually like go back and be like, oh, yeah, actually, that was a good draft pick there because he's doing well in the minors or he is in the majors now. Whereas with some of these guys, we're going to have to wait. I don't know. You could have to wait five, six years for a guy like Mazzucato. Um, But when you look back at some of the other drafts and you look back at some of the Royals, missed picks whether it's going back to like a guy like Bubba Starling and then you see oh well Anthony Rendon and Francisco Lindor and Javier Baez and George Springer guys like that went in the immediate picks behind him or in the 2012 draft when you ended up with Kyle Zimmer and then immediately after him goes uh, Max Fried who had a really good year last year or Lucas Giolito and Corey Seager in the teens of that draft who do you think the guy is that that would be the top candidate that you think we're going to look back on in five years if the pick doesn't work out and say, are you serious? They could have had this dude instead. Well, I mean, I think the obvious is Kumar Rocker. He he's he's the guy everybody wanted. Not everybody, but a lot of people wanted. 
Um, yeah, it kind of sounded like Rocker didn't want to go anywhere but New York either, by the way. I, I saw something, I can't remember where it was now, but about Boris, Scott Boris talking about how he had to work to get him down to New York, um, which is kind of interesting to hear. Um, but, I mean, he, you know, him, I, I think, you know, Brady House is a guy who I really liked. Um, I, I, I wasn't a huge Khalil Watson fan, but at the same time, he has the kind of talent that can explode. And so he could be a guy who you look at and go, well, what, what were they doing? Um, and then, there, you know, there's some other pitchers. Sam Bachman is a guy who has really good stuff. I mean, he could be, a, he could be an impact reliever probably tomorrow, honestly. Um, so, I mean, there, there are quite a few candidates. It, it, it's, what's frustrating is, you know, take the Bubba Starling draft as an example. They had, on the top of their draft board, the four pitchers who went one through four. And the idea was that I think it was the Mariners were not going to take one. That was kind of the industry consensus. And so the Royals were going to have their pick. It was, it was at the Cole draft. I think it was the Cole, Bauer, mm-hmm. Bundy, and Danny Holson draft. Um, the Royals were going to have their pick of whichever one of the four was not picked by the three teams that were picking pitchers in front of them. And the Mariners took Holson, which obviously didn't work out for them either, by the way. And so they were kind of left with Bubba Starling who was left at their board. So they kind of uh, stumbled into that pick, I guess. But then you fast forward to this year, and it's like when they got to that pick, Rocker, House, Watson, all these guys were available, and they went with a guy who the highest rating I saw was Kylie McDaniel at 21. Now, pre-draft rankings are what they are. You know, there's only so much you can know. Um, but it's a, you, when you go that far against industry consensus, well, the thing is, you better be right. I mean, you better when when the when push comes to shove, when when Mozacato's career, or not even career, when when it's when he's after his third year in the big leagues, a he better get there fairly quickly. And I don't mean like next year or two years, but I mean he should be knocking on the door of the majors as the number seven pick in late twenty four. I think. I mean, I don't think that's unreasonable to say. Um, he'll be 21. You know, he'll, he'll be young, yeah. But when you're when you have the talent to be the number seven overall pick, you should you should be able to move quickly. Um, I mean, when you look back in 2027, he's got to be the number two or three starter on this staff, right? I mean, that that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of where they have to get from him. And yeah, I look, I I, I want to say that this this front office will have to answer for it. If he's not, I I have a hunch this front office isn't going to be here, so it's not going to matter. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, there are quite a few options that could be better, and hopefully, you know, if if that does come to fruition, hopefully, somebody like the Luca Tresh pick, with I think it was the seventeenth round, they picked the NC State catcher. He's a guy who, you know, they could give him going back to that slot money. They could give they, they're they're going to have about two million, I think, extra for some picks. Um, so if they want to give Tresh one point five million as a seventeenth rounder. And he developed into a big league regular. Well, then, then it made the Mozicato pick make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but something like that has to happen if Mozicato isn't a two or three starter in a few years. Yeah, I just I, I don't really get on board. Like I, I get the underslot thing if you're picking in the teens or the twenties. I just it's a top seven pick. It feels like to me like just get the best guy. It seems that simple. To well, me. you know I get that. I, I I get it in the top ten even if your second pick is like thirty two. 
They didn't pick again until 43. And so that's the other problem. If you pick in the, in the top 10 and you say, look, hey, we want to save some money for player X, doesn't matter who it is, but then you don't pick for 36 more picks. I mean, so many things can go wrong. There are a number of guys, a number of guys who were thought to be the pick that the Royals were going to make, and then you start to see them go off the board. Ty Madden was one. Solomento, the, the Pirates, took was another. There are a couple others I'm, I'm blanking on right now. But I mean, there, there were so many guys who just didn't make it to 43 that they thought, oh, that could be the pick. And if they, got, you know, if they get Ty Madden, the, the righty from Texas, at 43, all of a sudden, oh, okay, I get it. Makes total sense. Because he's a guy who was a top 10 type pick before the season. Well, the Tigers took him at 32, I think, 34, something like that, um, which is going to hurt even more if, when, if and when the Tigers develop him. Um, but, you know, then it would have, you would look at that and go, okay, I, I get it. But they didn't get him because they had to wait 36 picks. I mean, that, that's the thing. You, the Mania Dozier thing, it was pick eight to pick 34. That's 26. That's not as far. I you can I can get on board with that because there's much less variance the fewer picks in between. But yeah, they, I mean they found themselves in a tough situation that they created for themselves. So it's hard to get hard to feel bad for them. But at the same time, you know, it's just I I I, I think the draft just didn't fall the way they wanted it to, and it, and it ended up biting them. We're talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown. Somebody asked me this question as I was watching the draft, and I had no idea what the answer was. So I'm just going to ask it to you. Um, how do we know, like, if some of these high schoolers or college pitchers aren't using the sticky stuff? We don't. Mm. And that, that's a problem, too. Um, yeah, you know, it tends to show up more in fastballs. So uh, you can look at some spin rates, but at the same time, I mean, you can, you can take a bad spin rate to average, and, and not even think twice because, oh, 2,200 RPM is no big deal. But it would be 1950 or something like that. So don't really know the answer. You've got to assume – I mean, every team works really hard to background check these guys. And, and, and I think what you'll see – I mean, there, there's a lot of vetting process going on. So I, I think you've got to assume that the scouting staffs, the whoever – Whoever talked to the parents and all that had a frank conversation and said, look, are, are you using sticky stuff? If you are, let us know. It's not going to stop us from drafting you. It might be a lie. I don't know. <laughs> um, but we need to know because that's, it's, it's driving your numbers. Um, but ultimately, I don't, I don't think there's a way to really know. And that's kind of frustrating, too. The good news is I, maybe I'm putting way too much faith into Major League Baseball. I feel like they're going to find a way to get some some help for the pitchers, um, whether it's a tackier ball or an approved substance or something. And so I think that'll start to even out. Um, probably not next year on the ball, at least, because I heard that wouldn't be until 2023. But, I mean, by the time these guys get to the big leagues, in all likelihood, it, it won't be an issue anymore. But, yeah, you don't know. I, I think that conversation came up because I was watching the draft with some friends, and I think it might have been Jackson Job. It might have been somebody else, but it was like a high school pitcher who it said his like curveball or, or something had like a thirty two hundred RPM yeah. in high school. Yeah. And that was like that was a little little bit of a question. I don't know. Maybe he's just that talented. Who knows? Um so as far as the Royals that we currently have, second half of the season starts up in a couple days. What are your expectations for the second half of the season? And maybe give us some reasons that if people are starting to fade away. 
get back to it and, and start watching some more Royals baseball. Uh, my expectations are pain. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, actually, <laughs> are I'm you not kidding? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. Um, I, if you're looking for some reasons for optimism, one of the main reasons the Royals struggled over the last month, and this is not an excuse for the rest of the time, obviously, but I mean, their bullpen was just absolutely worn down. The, the starters, I wrote about it today on Inside the Crown, the starters, they're not even averaging five innings per start. So the bullpen is just having to put in so much work that they're finding. We saw it, especially in the last weekend, Barlow and Brent and Zimmer, last week really, those guys who were such rocks all season long, I mean, they were, they're just leaving pitches out over the middle of the plate. They're just, it's, they will never say it, I'm sure, but they're tired. It's been a long season. They've thrown a lot of a lot more pitches than they should have. And so I, I think the break will help. Um, getting a rain out on Sunday was honestly like a gift. I mean, they, they needed that extra day off. But every team needs four days off. The Royals needed five or six, maybe seven. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they, they needed some real time off. And so that I think that will help out of the gates. You know, I wrote today they had, in April, they won, I can't remember what the number was now, six or eight games. Uh, scoring fewer than four runs. And then they've won three since then. And, and, and part of that is that the bullpen just isn't able to hold a lead. They, they, if it's three to two, they're going to lose five to three. I mean, that, that's as simple as that. But in April, if it was three to two, they were winning three to two because the bullpen, there's talent in that back of the bullpen. You, Scott Barlow, Kyle Zimmer, Josh Dalmont, Jake Brent, even Greg Holland, who people are not real thrilled with, but he was having a really nice season too before he started to wear down. I mean, it's, that's a really good quintet of relievers. And if you add Richard Lovelady, Carlos Hernandez, you know, maybe Tyler Zuber comes back. I mean, they've got some serious talent in that bullpen. They just need to not overwork them. And it's not Matheny's fault. It's the starter's fault for not being able to get deeper into games. And so I think we can see, at least early on, I think we'll probably see a little bit better baseball um, just from not being so tired. But, you know, until Mondesi gets back, until, you know, maybe they call up Bobby Witt Jr. I don't, I don't know when that will happen or if it will even happen this year. He's, I, I anticipate the move to AAA next week. Um, so, you know, then your hop's going to jump away, really. But um, the offense doesn't – there's not a whole lot to love about the offense. I, I, I do think we'll start to see some moves being made, whether it's just moving on from guys like, you know, Jorge Soler. Um or making some trades. I think Michael A. Taylor is going to be really attractive to some teams as the fourth outfielder. Draw Dyson might be too. So you might start to see some guys. Like maybe you'll see Edder Oliveira's up for more than three days before he gets sent back down. Maybe Ryan McBroom gets another shot, and he's hitting really well in Omaha. Um, and maybe it's Nick Prado. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter who it is, just fresh faces, which is more exciting than the guys who we've seen struggling all season long. And so I, I think we'll see a lot of that as well. But it's uh, – it's really it's about, it's about getting those relievers some rest so they can win some close games because they haven't been able to hang on to any of them lately. We're talking with David Lesky inside the crown. I only got one more thing for you. I did this last Friday with Joshua Briscoe when he came on the show, and with so much going on in baseball, I figured this would just be a good rapid-fire way to do this. A simple, simple game. Good idea, bad idea. You tell me if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, Rob Manfred had one of his two like yearly talks with reporters and such today and said uh, it doesn't seem likely, or maybe this was yesterday, that uh, there will be the seven-inning doubleheaders from now on. So is that a good idea or a bad idea? 
Neither. It's a great idea. Get rid of that crap. <laughs> uh, the home run derby format, which was exciting, but also made me feel like I was getting whiplash watching on the TV. Good, good idea or bad idea? Um, it's a good idea, but I agree. Like they, they, they changed it from having to wait to throw a pitch until the ball landed to just being able to throw them. Um, they need to figure out a way to track the balls better because uh, honestly, we were just watching batting practice. It felt like I wanted, I want to see the balls fly out. So I don't know what it is. That, that's a broadcast thing. I like the format. The broadcast needs to figure out a way to make it less, uh, less, less, I won't say less action, but more that you can see everything, I guess. Uh, last one, drafting all pitchers in your entire 20-round draft. Good idea or bad idea? When you're the Angels, great idea. Because <laughs> that team has nothing. Can I, I want to add in, talking to Briscoe, always a bad idea, just, just for the <laughs> okay. record. I'll make sure to pass that along next time uh, I talk with Josh. <laughs> uh, he is David Lesky. Check out all his work. It's awesome. Inside the Crown, subscribe to his Substack. You get everything you need about Royals right into your inbox. You can read it every morning with David. David, thank you so much for the time, and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thanks for uh, fighting through it today. Oh, you know it. (laughs) All right, that's David Lesky inside the crown right here on RCST. Two hours down, one to go.